Hear now the very words of God as they are given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, verses 13 through 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And may the Lord truly bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive for us. Heavenly Father, what a a dramatic scene we have before us and the annunciation, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist as Gabriel confronts Zechariah in the temple. Dear Lord, we pray that as we read these words, that the the deep meaning that is there, we don't have time to go over all of it. Uh, what, what What a bridge between Old and New Testament we have before us. But I pray that you will help me in my communication to bring out the lessons that are here, not only about John the Baptist, but also for each one of us as we try to walk with you and grow with you and be sanctified through the work of the Spirit. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we sort of started the the narrative part of Luke's gospel and we read, first of all, about Herod I, who was the king of Judea. But history doesn't remember Herod I in that way, and I don't think Herod saw himself that way either. It remembers him as Herod the Great. And the question that I want to pose to you this morning is, what made Herod great? Why, why would you put that after a person's name, the great, talking about greatness? Well, Herod, of course, was the greatest of all the Herods, his offspring that followed him. He was a king of Judea. He was a tyrant. He was a, a very wealthy man, and he was a fantastic builder. He did many things, but... Was he truly great in just the short time that he danced in the limelight of this life? Well, many people, especially rulers during the year, have had the words, the great, put after their names. Alexander would be one of them, a young man who in 10 years in his 30s literally captured or conquered the known world. Now, he was a great military commander, but did that actually make him great. Now, Christendom has its own rulers that we called great. One of them was Constantine the Great, 4th century. He was the one responsible for legitimizing Christianity and putting an end, at least temporarily, to some of the persecutions of the church. But at the same time, it was doubtful whether or not he was even saved. And he did as much to paganize the church as anyone establishing or helping to establish the Roman see that would become 
the Roman Catholic Church. Later on, there was another great in the Christendom. Actually, he's the one that actually established Christendom, Charlemagne, which is French for Charles the Great. And, and he was responsible for sort of melding the kingdom with the church, with the Roman church, and kind of created the Holy Roman Empire. But at the same time, that was sort of the foundation of, the, of all of the heresies of the Middle Age, the Roman Catholic Church, and kind of set the scene for the Crusades. So can we, any, can we say that any of these men were truly great? Well, we're going to see this morning that the angel is going to tell Zechariah that his son-to-be will be great before the Lord, great in the sight of the Lord. Any of these men that I've talked about so far in any way great in the sight of the Lord? Of course not. They were ingrates and pagans and barbarous, bloodletting men who were absolutely driven by their own greed, their own ambitions, and their lust to dominate. That's exactly the opposite of what the scripture teaches us is true greatness. Fast forwarding to modern times, Dr. Sproul in his commentary uses the example of Cassius Clay. You know him as Muhammad Ali, who used to love to get in front of the cameras and say, I'm the greatest, you know? Are you great just because you declare yourself to be great? Are you great because you have one particular skill? You're a great boxer or you have um, some kind of athletic prowess or because you make a lot of money, because you're famous, because you have control, because you have intellectual prowess, because you have a talent and an ability like that? Does that make you absolutely great in the eyes of the Lord? Well, to make matters kind of even more complex and confusing, The church has established greatness in worldly terms. Talking about health and wealth and prosperity. You can be great in the eyes of the Lord and he'll give you all kinds of of money. In fact, you can sell books if you just simply tell people that they have an inherent greatness in them. Even Pope Benedict XVI, you know he was the Pope who stepped down in 2013. He made the statement that you were made for greatness. Well, I would agree with that, but not the way he meant it. Because that's our subject this morning. I want to talk about what true kingdom greatness is. And we're going to get an announcement by an angel who's been in the presence of God of what kingdom greatness is. And we're going to sort of unfold that as we look at these verses. But I don't want just to talk about kingdom greatness as if it is something that is untouchable, can only be observed. Because Jesus told us that greatness was completely different in the kingdom than it is in the eyes of the world. Remember when they asked him who was great in the kingdom of heaven? He brought a child and he says, this is, you know, unless you become like one of these children, you are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He said, he who is last will become first and who is first will become last. Everything is upside down in the kingdom. So what true kingdom greatness is, is going to run completely contrary to what greatness is in the eyes of the world around us. But here's what I want to consider, and we'll consider it pretty much at the end of this message. Is greatness just something that we can stare at from a distance? Or can we share as Christians in true kingdom greatness right now? Well, I think we can, and I want to bring that out as we look at this story. 
Now, where we left things last week, if you were here, was quite dramatic. Remember, I led, I led, led you up to a dramatic moment, and they just kind of left you hanging. Because Zechariah, who is on an emotional roller coaster for sure, having been childless his whole life and gone through the stigma of all that, and then all of a sudden being chosen out of 18,000 priests in Israel to be the one on this particular day to burn the incense representing the prayers of the people. And so it's a major day for Zechariah and he enters the temple. We know that he has gone into the holy place, the sanctuary, and he stands now before the golden altar of incense and all of a sudden out of nowhere an angel appears, Gabriel the archangel, who has come with a message for him. Now, what makes this so dramatic is not just the appearance of an angel, but the fact that no, there's been no revelation at all for 400 years. God has been silent, and he chose this place and this man and this time to start the greatest revelation of all, which, of course, is the advent of his son, Jesus Christ. And now... He is announcing the forerunner, the herald of that uh, that advent to Zechariah. Um, And so that's the scene that we enter in on. And of course, we know that Zechariah is terrified. That 12th verse, just before where we started reading today, we know that fear fell upon him and it would fall upon you too. But I think it would fall more on a priest because it has to be in the back of their mind, the story of Nadab and Abihu. And if you're in the middle of the temple and you're offering something on fire and all of a sudden an angel from heaven appears, you figure he's there to zap you. Right, But of course not. That's the reason the angel, the first thing he's going to do is assuage um, Zechariah. So let's take a look at that 13th verse because that's how the conversation starts. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Now, notice the personal address. The angel knows his name. So, I mean, this is something of deep personalness or a personal relationship or a personal address to Zechariah. And I'll explain why I think that is significant in a moment. But he says, do not be afraid. You do not have to fear me for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, that's very interesting interesting way for the angel to frame that opening sentence. Your prayer has been heard and your wife will bear you a son. Now, he's there on that day. I'm told that the afternoon prayers, which is probably what this is, was a prayer where the priest prayed specifically for the nation of Israel. So Zechariah is supposed to be praying for Israel. Are we to assume that as he's saying the prayers for Israel, he's sneaking in a prayer for himself so that he might have a child? Well, no, of course not. And the reason that would not be is because He's already past that point. Both he and Elizabeth are advanced in years. They're past the age of having children. So there was a time in their life that they would have fervently prayed that God would provide them with a child. But that time has passed, probably decades past. I mean, he's lost hope in that. So yes, Zechariah would have been praying on this day for the people of Israel. But the angel comes and says, your prayer has been heard because God is going to give you a son. And remember what Zechariah's name means? Zachariah, remember Yahweh, God remembers. 
Well, God remembers Zechariah's prayer. No matter how many decades ago he stopped praying that prayer, he remembers it. But here's what's so interesting about it, at least to me. This is the way that God's providence works. This is the way he works in history through individuals. You think about all of the great covenants. You think about the great times of his revelation to Abraham, to, to Joseph, to, to Moses, to David. I mean, all of this were individuals that God worked through. But at the same time that he works through individuals, he's working through the many. That's the way we started out this gospel. It's a gospel for the one and for the many. Well, he is answering Zechariah's prayer from way back, but at the same time, he's answering the prayers that Zechariah is praying for the people, because this is going to be the harbinger, the forerunner, the herald of the solution to sin, and so therefore, this is a glorious time, but God works out his providence, both by dealing with an individual and dealing with people, so you know something, folks, if God hasn't answered your prayers right now, or you think that they're just little sort of, okay, this is just for me and it doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. God might be working out his providence through your prayers. And the great thing to remember about God is Zechariah. God remembers. He never forgets your prayers, even if he doesn't answer them right off the bat. Well, anyway, he says that your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. Now, in the Greek, that's Yohanan, um, and it means God is gracious, and certainly we see that God is gracious. Uh, I mean, God is graciously going to provide Zechariah with, uh, with, with a son, um, but I don't think that it's the meaning of the name that is of the greatest significance. I don't think that's the reason that the angel is saying that. In the Bible, and most of you know this, when there's a naming that occurs, it is a sign of the establishment of authority. When Adam was told to name the animals in the Garden of Eden, that was a statement of dominion, of authority over God's creation as a steward and responsible for that as well. When he named Eve, it was the establishment of the biblical relationship between husband and wife. But when God changes the name of someone, when God does the naming, it has the same meaning of authority, but a little bit more specific. Remember when he changed Abram's name to Abraham or Sarah's name to Sarah. That was when the covenant is being established and the beginning, really, of the, of the covenant of grace. Not really the beginning. Noah's was part of that. But, but nonetheless, a whole redemptive history starts with Abraham. And it was as if to say, you know something, Abraham, you're no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You're mine. You belong to me. Now, when God names a baby, uh, especially an infant who has not yet been born, like Isaac, or even conceived, like Isaac, or Samuel, or now John the Baptist, and Jesus himself, all of those named by God before conception. What that means is this, this child is wholly set aside for my purposes. That's the meaning of the word consecrate. This child is consecrated to me. And I have plans for this child that are going to actually take up their, their entire life. So there is an authority that is set up and that authority is to God himself. And so that is significant that God is the one who is naming John. Well, anyway... 
the angel goes on to state the obvious pretty much in the 14th verse. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. At, at his birth. Well, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, of course there's going to be joy and gladness on several different levels. For one thing, their stigma, and of course there's always a stigma, especially in those days, that goes with barrenness, and Elizabeth had been barren. So the stigma that they had faced their whole lives of not having a child because it was seen as at least the disapproval of God, if not the curse of God. And so therefore, they went from a disapproving God to all of a sudden, Zechariah's great day, he's chosen by Lot, which is to be chosen by God, to birth the incense and now that's all going to be turned around not only are they going to have a child but obviously a miraculous child so all of a sudden Zechariah and Elizabeth's you know um, social status are going to go way high because that stigma is going to be reversed but this is not just joy and gladness for Zechariah and Elizabeth goes on to say that many, that many will be rejoice at his birth. Once again, Luke's all about now the one and the many. It is going to be a source of gladness for, for, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that God made way back to Abraham. All the families of the world will be blessed through your descendants. And so we are seeing that process beginning because this is the herald of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, 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 the Savior of the world. This is going to make immensely people glad, and we're still glad today, right? Because of this event. So many are indeed going to be made glad through this. But then in the 15th verse, he begins to to talk about, um, really get to sort of the heart of our subject this morning, which is what is kingdom greatness, because he's going to announce that this child is going to be great. Look in the 15th verse. And, and, and you will have, I'm, I'm sorry, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So the angel goes right ahead and tells Zechariah that this child is going to be great before the Lord. New American Standard, and I think the NIV say great in the sight of the Lord. This is going to be the very, a child who is a very uh, example of true kingdom greatness. That's why we want to take a particular look at this. Now, we've already established, if you were listening at the front end of this, that, that greatness in the eyes of the world is completely different than greatness in the eyes of the Lord, greatness before the Lord. Now, we, we, we see a very humble beginning as far as John the Baptist, uh, in, in, in a, even into the time of his, uh, of his standing in the present, I mean, standing as a prophet in the desert. I mean, this is a very unusual view of someone who is supposed to be great. But what did Jesus say about John the Baptist, what he will be when he grows up? In Matthew eleven eleven, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now that's a huge statement.
statement. I don't know if you realize how big that statement is. I mean, look at Moses and Abraham and David and, and Elijah. Look at all these great Old Testament saints. So the question has to be asked, what is it that makes John the Baptist so great? Why is this child going to be the greatest man? Of course, we assume that Jesus means the greatest one born of woman before me, all right? Because, of course, Jesus is the greatest human being who ever lived, all human, all God at the same time. But nonetheless, what was it that made John the Baptist so great? Well, we've discussed this before, but let me just go ahead and tell you. It's real simple. Um, It's nothing to do with John the Baptist. It's not any inherent attribute or inherent quality in him. It's not somebody, I mean, after all, go look at him when he starts his ministry. He lives out in the desert. He's got hair that's unshaved. He's got camel skins that he wears, and he eats bugs. I mean, is that anything that is close to our understanding of what greatness is? But John the Baptist's greatness would be entirely because of his proximity to Christ because he is the one who has been chosen to be the forerunner, the herald. He is the last Old Testament prophet and he is going to be right next to Christ. So it is the proximity and the task that he has been given that makes John the Baptist great and nothing inherent in John the Baptist. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a major lesson for us to learn. If we're even thinking about the hint of sharing the true kingdom greatness, you will not find it in anything that smacks of the world's greatness. In our study of Mark, we're, we're literally at the, the, this verse where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus says, if you really want to be great, just deny yourself, renounce yourself, leave your old self in the sewer where it belongs and take on the new identity, the new creation in Christ. Be filled with my Holy Spirit and follow me. And that's the very essence of kingdom greatness. Well, we're going to see that John the Baptist also has some other qualities that make him great. That's by far the, the, the greatest, uh, the one that makes him the greatest amongst all uh, men. But there's some other qualities that he has. We're going to look at it just a few mi- a minutes about his boldness, the, the way he preached the truth of God like Elijah did in the power and the spirit of Elijah. But it was also that John was the one who was chosen to identify the Christ, not just to be the forerunner, not just to prepare the hearts for him, not just to be close to Christ, but also to point the way to Christ. He was the one that said, the Holy Spirit told me that whoever the dove descends upon, remember in John, that's the Messiah. He takes one look at Jesus to be baptized and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is a tremendous privilege and makes John the Baptist great. So three things I want you to remember about that will come back up later on. What made John the Baptist great was first, closeness to Jesus. Secondly, the boldness to tell the truth. And thirdly, he pointed people to the Savior, to Christ. 
Those are the three things, brothers and sisters, that truly stand for kingdom greatness. Well, anyway, that's, the, uh, that, that, that's where we are going to go in a little bit. But notice what he says next. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that opening statement, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, sounds very similar to the Old Testament vows of the Nazarites. The Nazarites were special people. Samson was one that were set aside for the Lord's use, and they took a vow either temporarily or for their lives. Now, I'm not going to go too deeply into that. I will go into it a little more deeply in the after church, which, by the way, will start right after uh, we take the Lord's Supper. I'll go into it a little bit more of what it meant to be a Nazarite. But the, the, the point is this, is that even though he's not going to drink wine or strong drink, that's not all of the vows that were included in being a Nazarite. So we can't rule out the fact that John the Baptist was not a Nazarite, but we can't establish that he was based on this particular information. Um, but what's really important here is the comparison, and, and this is what I want you to see. And again, I'll talk a little bit more about wine and strong drink in the after church, but it's not that this is a mandate against drinking wine, but in another sense, it is a mandate against drinking wine or small drink because of the way that the angel compares it. He says to, to that John the Baptist, he must not, in what he is called to do, he must not drink wine or strong drink because he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And regardless if it's just a slight numbing or a slight inebriation or getting drunk, which of course was, was absolutely not something that John the Baptist could have done, whatever it is will take away from what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God is so much better than any earthly spirit to kind of make a play on that word. And, that, and, and that's really what this is about. He is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and nothing of this world should numb that. I think that's the reason he moved out into the desert and he was an ascetic and he ate bugs and, and honey and stuff like that because he didn't want anything of this world to be taking away from what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and that's a, a very significant, I think, statement. And again, once again, we'll get a little bit deeper into that in the after church. But you may say, you know something, that's Old Testament stuff. I mean, even though it's New Testament, John the Baptist is an Old Testament uh, prophet. And so what applies to him doesn't necessarily apply to the rest of us. I, I don't know that you can say that. Uh, and, and trust me, most of you know that in my younger life, I was seriously, I had a serious drinking problem. And, and I'm not just reacting to that because actually, you know, uh, someone who's had a drinking problem and has been released from it, 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 uh, it completely, it doesn't touch the stuff. But I'm not saying that because of my past. I'm saying this because of the way it is presented to us in Scripture. And this is what Paul says to the Galatians. But when he, I'm sorry, um, to the Ephesians, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
In other words, it's a lot better, brothers and sisters, walking with Christ to be filled with the Holy Spirit than to be filled with anything else that would numb the effect or the ability to, 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 to interact with that Spirit. But there's another statement that's at the end of that verse that is of great significance. So let's turn our focus there. And he says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, what do you think the angel means by that? He could either mean, and scholars are divided on this, he could either mean that this is just a marking of time. From his mother's womb kind of means from infancy on. It's another way of saying his entire life. Is that what the angel means or... Is the angel talking about a supernatural indwelling of the Holy Spirit in John while he is still a fetus in his mother's womb? Well, even scholars like Calvin who say, no, that's not what the angel means here, will turn that around later on when Mary and Elizabeth meet with the, and the babies have a reaction with each other. Um, that that's uh, others like John MacArthur says no th- th- this is this is a, a, um, a regeneration that is occurring of John the Baptist while he is still in the womb of his mother we'll, we'll really get into that a little bit later on when the two women meet but but there's two points I want to make about this two strong points first of all abortionists beware here read this carefully God is dealing with the spirit that is in an unborn child, both, if not here, certainly later on. This is a discussion of that child developing in his mother's womb being far more than just a wart or a piece of plasma. That is a human being capable of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Man. Kills me when I think about Christians supporting Abortion or putting abortionist in office cannot comprehend it because that is a being that God can actually impart his spirit to even while that child is in the womb. But there's another way of looking at it, another very important way, and that is that um, God chooses, elects, predestines, foreordains John the Baptist for the task that he has for him before conception. Later on, we're going to see that Mary and, and Elizabeth conceived and had a son. So this was before the child is even conceived, okay? And the Lord has come down to say, this is the way that child is going to be. He is going to be mine, consecrated to me, and he is going to do my bidding. And, and, and he's not completely alone in that. There's what Isaiah says about his experience. He says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Jeremiah put it this way, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. All of this occurs before the child is even born. So all three of these prophets were foreknown, chosen, elected, predestined, not only to be the Lord's, but also to be to to accomplish the tasks that the Lord had for them. Where in this do you see free will choice? And you say, oh, well, that's Old Testament. Yeah, those are all prophets. That doesn't happen in the New Testament after Jesus. I don't know. Read what Paul says in the Galatians. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, 
and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Brothers and sisters, that's Paul talking about the same thing. Now, here's the problem that you have. And you know that we, there's this ongoing discussion about free will choice and do I choose Jesus or did Jesus choose me? But if Paul was set aside before he was born and John was set aside before he was born and Jesus was 100% human in his human nature and set aside before he was born and Isaiah and Jeremiah, if they were all set aside and regenerated and filled with the Spirit before they were even born, that means you are saying, if you say, I chose Jesus, you're saying that I have a different salvation than they did. I came to know Christ in a different way. There's two methods of salvation here. For them, God chose them. For me, I chose God. It doesn't work that way, folks. Um, Very One of the most profound statements of election that you'll find, and the Bible is filled with them, but this talks about God choosing John the Baptist and Jesus later on prior to conception to accomplish the task that He had for them. That is indeed um, election. Well, anyway, let's go on to the 16th verse. As we begin to see the the function that that this John the Baptist, who will be the baptizer, is going to accomplish. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, I want to get technical with you for just a moment here. If you're reading along in the New American Standard, you'll notice that it says, and he will turn the children of Israel or the people of Israel back to the Lord their God. The underlying Greek word that is used there, that's exactly what it means. It's to turn back. It has the connotation of heading the wrong way and then being told that you're heading the wrong way and then turning around and going back the other way, going the right way, headed for error and then being changed from that error and turning around and going towards, uh, towards that which is correct. Very similar to the New Testament, to the um, Greek word metanoia, which means repentance. But this one has a little bit of a different nuance to it. Elsewhere in the New Testament, you will see that it is used to translate the word converted. It it speaks of conversion here. It speaks of someone who is being converted from a wrong path to a right path. Okay. Now, notice what the angel is saying. The angel is saying that he will turn the children of Israel back To God, to the Lord their God. Now, implied in that statement is the state of apostasy of the Jews at that time. You don't have to turn someone back to God who is pursuing God. You turn people back to God who have forsaken God. And so it is a statement of the apostate's condition of Israel. But notice what the angel says next. To turn the people back to the Lord their God. Now remember that the angel is a messenger. That's what the word angel means. They're actually messengers of God. So Gabriel, we're going to learn later on, has come from the presence of God with God's message for the people. So he doesn't make it up himself. He doesn't ad lib. He faithfully expresses what God has said. So God has just said in that statement, I know you're apostate, but I want you to remember I am still your God. 
Because, Zachariah, I remember my covenant with Abraham and I still love you and I still want you to turn back to me. I want you to repent. I want you to be mine. I am sending my son and I'm sending this one, the harbinger, the herald of that son, so that you may be redeemed. Even though you have turned on me, I still love you. That's the reason I picked that moment in the word. Starts out with a, a feeling of angst. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. Listen to me. You remember what he said? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him so that you might be you can turn back to God and be healed. Because there is no other way to be healed except through. The relationship with Jesus Christ. So remember that word because we're going to run into it again down in the 17th verse, which we turn to now. And basically the 17th verse is, is, is the angel telling us the function of John the Baptist or the child to come. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, that could also read, turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, first of all, the angel says that he's, he's going to be coming in the power and spirit of, of Elijah. Now, I told you that there was this tremendous, that Luke was enthralled with the Old Testament Hebrew history of redemption. And he's already taken us back several times to Abraham. And now he takes us back to the last of the prophets, Malachi, 400 years prior. And he quotes the very last two verses. These are the 400 years later. This, these are the last two statements that God made um, before he went silent for 400 years. Let me read it from Malachi because um, it kind of sets the scene for us. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That, of course, I think refers to the advent of the kingdom with Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. So, is John the Baptist Elijah? I mean, if you remember, Elijah never died. He was taken up. But is, is John the Baptist simply Elijah who's come back? If you remember, the Jews are still waiting for Elijah, right? And the Seder on the Passover, they usually leave a chair there for Elijah. You know, welcome him back. Come on back so the Messiah will come. But Jesus told us, you know, John the Baptist, they actually asked him. I don't know if you remember this, but when he was baptizing and the Jews came out, and, and, and asked him, who are you? Are you the Christ? He said, no, I'm not the Christ. They went on and said, and what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I am not. Okay, so John the Baptist himself says, no, I am not Elijah. But Jesus is the one who said it this way. He says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah to come. So in other words, he is not actually physically Elijah. He's a different person. But he is coming in the power and spirit of Elijah. He's the spiritual Elijah because that Elijah is the one that the Lord has sent to prepare the way for, um, uh, for him to come, uh, for, for, the, for the Savior to come. 
So in what way do we see John the Baptist as Elijah? How, how, how does that fit together? Well, in several ways, but I want to just key on one. Do, do you remember the story of Elijah? Do you remember the head-on-head he had with Ahab and the wicked king and his very wicked wife Jezebel? And do you remember how Jezebel wanted to kill Elijah? And it didn't happen that way. But he was constantly telling Ahab, Ahab, you're sinful, you're wrong, you can't do that. Okay? He confronted, wasn't afraid to confront Ahab directly. Well, in the very same sense, remember John the Baptist, he confronted Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who had taken his brother's wife, Herodias, and Herodias hated him, right? It was, it was, she was the one who ordered his execution. So very similar in that sense. But I think more of what the angel is talking about here is, is the power with which Elijah spoke. You see, Elijah was one of those people who were fearless to speak the word of God. He was the, you know, he's going to go up against all the prophets of Baal and he's going to say, come on, you know, uh, pray louder, you know, so maybe they don't hear you. He was fearless in any situation and John the Baptist also was fearless. Listen to what he says in Matthew. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He was faithful and fearless to preach the truth of God's word. Let me repeat that because it's important. The, one of the reasons these were compared to the power and spirit of Elijah because John the Baptist would be fearlessly faithful to the preaching of the absolute truth of God's word no matter who he offended because that statement right there is not politically correct by any means. Now, he's going to be the same kind of upholder of the truth. Well, anyway, the angel goes on after he makes that statement and says, and he will turn many of the children, I'm sorry, let me jump down, I'm reading the wrong place, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now, once again, that's right out of, uh, of um, Malachi, Malachi 4, 6. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, you notice that the angel didn't quote it quite like that. He, he didn't quote the full, he will turn the, the, the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. He just said, he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. Now, I think that part of the reason for that is more than likely everyone knew that. This is like the final verse in the Old Testament, so they're certainly going to know that and perhaps assume that it meant also the returning of the children back to their fathers. But here's what I want to bring out. I think that the angel left out that second half to put the emphasis on the fathers, to put the emphasis on what is going to happen within the family unit that is going to change the face of the society of Israel, that he is going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And I, and I think we can put mothers in there as well. The parents are going to be once again interested in the 
outcome and the kind of world their children are going to live in. But I think that there is still a great emphasis on the fathers. And once again, this is a topic and it's a little bit fuller for the after church. If you want to hear a rant, um, come to the after church because this is one of the greatest problems that we have in our society today. But notice, notice what the angel is saying. We've already heard of the apostasy of the children of Israel. And one of the marks, brothers and sisters, of a sinful and adulterous generation, which is what Jesus kept calling that generation, One of the marks of that kind of a generation is that the parents cease to worry about their children and they don't discipline them and they don't, remember, the word is turn back and it is a word that has the connotation of conversion, that the parents, especially the fathers, are no longer interested in the relationship that their children have with God. And so they're interested in themselves and they focus on themselves and they don't think about the kind of world that they are leaving to their children. They do stuff like not take them to the temple or not take them to the synagogue or I don't know maybe something like letting the national debt build up to where it cannot possibly be turned off and you don't worry about whether or not we could conserve we just leave it for our children to figure all that out not to worry about the abject sinfulness of the society that we live in we're going to leave our children to mop up the mess that we have made because we have been silent as a church and we haven't stood up against the evils of the world that is around us you leave it to your children. And I can't tell you how many times, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to rant here, I'm going to rant later. But I can't tell you how many times I have heard, oh, you know, they just really don't want to come to church. They don't like going to Sunday school. They don't get anything out of your messages. You know, I, we're just going to let them stay home and we'll come to church and they're home watching television and playing video games. Really? You see, that's what's being talked about here. And now the angel says, that's going to change. Okay, there's going to be a turnaround. This one who comes in the name of Jesus to prepare the way for him is going to be part of the process of turning the fathers back to their children. And when that happens, harmony and balance occurs in the home and an entire environment that facilitates conversion is brought about because there's going to be God in that home. And that is the fabric upon which God built society. Don't let people lie to you now and say the day of the family is over. It is not. That is still the fabric upon which God builds society. And when it falls apart, society falls apart. And that kind of is picked up in the next statement. It's not just the fathers and their sons or daughters or the parents and their children. It's also all of society because he will turn the, 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 the disrespectful, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. They will turn those who are scoffers, those who are rejecting the truth of God that has been passed down from generation to generation. And they will once again turn to righteousness, to that which is just they will be turned and converted back to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is what John the Baptist is going to put in place. But in a sense, the angel leaves the best to last to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. If you jump back quickly to the beginning of that 17th verse, he says, and he will go before him. And that is the 
That is the, the definition of who John the Baptist is. He goes before the Lord. He's the herald. He's the forerunner. Luke puts it this way, quoting Isaiah. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That is what John the Baptist true purpose is to prepare the hearts of people for the salvation who is coming. Remember that um, this is what, uh, uh, these are several ways that that is expressed. Again from Luke, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and every hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's what John the Baptist would do. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called people to repentance. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to this. He fulfilled a vital purpose, a vital function in the history of redemption, one that is encapsulated in our own uh, evangelism, and that is to lead people to repentance. Now, how do you lead people to repentance? You convict them of their sinfulness. And that's what John the Baptist did. He said, I came to, to, uh, uh, with a baptism of, of forgiveness of sins, repentance for forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to prepare the heart. If you've ever taken evangelism courses with me, you know that I put a great emphasis on that. I mean, I, I'm one of those who honestly believes that someone who has not confronted their sins, who has not repented, who has not completely recognized a, 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 that he is a sinful or she is a sinful person, and those sins will condemn them before a holy God, and they will face his wrath in an eternity of punishment that unless they are convicted of their sins, how can they understand their need for a Savior? How can they truly accept Jesus? Well, that's the function of John the Baptist. To come and convict the people of their sins so that they will understand that they must return to the Lord, repent, and then be forgiven of their sins. Well, as I kind of step back from this, and we remember the way we were talking at the beginning, we were talking about what it meant to have kingdom greatness. I think we've seen it here. I think we have seen part of the reason, and not just the reason that John the Baptist will be great, but the way that we might be great as well. Remember what we learned. First of all, we learned that the, that the reason John the Baptist was so great was not because of anything inherent in him. It was because of his closeness to Jesus. That's number one. The second thing we learned is that he was going to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. He was willing to stand up for and fearlessly and faithfully preach the truth. And number three, he had come as a forerunner to point people to Jesus. To say, there was one who comes after me and, and the very sandals on his feet I'm not worthy to un unstrap. He must increase. I must decrease. He is the one that it's all about. It's not about me. It's about him. And so he pointed people to Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is the very epitome of what kingdom greatness is. And, and, you know, as I started looking at that summary, as I was writing, I was saying, hey, wait a minute, this is evangelism, folks. <laughs> this is an evangelistic outreach. John the Baptist is being sent as the, the, the evangelist to lead people to Christ. And so, therefore, this is how we share in that greatness. It, it's, it, it's, it's not because there's anything inherent in us. It's the task that we've been given. It's the great commission that we've been given. 
So let me make just these three points before I turn to communion. First of all, well, actually, there are four points, so let me make one point here. The second you decide to pursue kingdom greatness for kingdom greatness' sake, you failed. Okay? That's not, that's, I mean, it, seriously, if there is even the hint that you are pursuing kingdom greatness so that you can be great in the kingdom, you've already missed the boat because you don't understand kingdom greatness at all. It is bathed in humility. It is bathed in that new identity that Christ gives you. So there's three things. First being closeness to Christ. What's the greatest thing that anyone can say about another Christian? What's the greatest compliment anyone can ever give you? And mean it. I see Christ in you. When I look at you, I see Christ. And, 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 you know, we need to qualify that because so many people misunderstand what it means when someone actually says that and means that I see Christ in you. It doesn't mean Christ did a lot of good things. And you see you so busy doing a lot of good things. So, therefore, you know, I see you doing Christ-like things. So I see Christ in you. That's, that, that's part of it. That's what's going to come out of it. But that's not what it means to see Christ in you. In you. To see Christ in you is not to see you at all. <laughs> You're transparent. You cease to exist. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow me, he says, lose your identity and take on my identity. So when people look at you, they see Jesus and they don't see you. That's what it means to to have people look at you and say, man, you are so close to Christ. I can see Christ in you. It's to walk with him. It's to live with him. It's to love him. It's to follow him. It is to exchange your identity to the identity that he gives you. That's what it means to be close to Christ. That is kingdom greatness, brothers and sisters. The less of you, the more of him, the greater the greatness. Second thing is to fearlessly and faithfully preach or teach or say, or uphold, and of course, live the truth of the Word of God. Something that is not done in this world, but that's what, that's what John the Baptist did, that's what Elijah did, was to teach and preach the unfiltered, undiminished, unwatered-down Word of God. And that means we don't diminish the transcendent holiness of God like we learn. We don't bring him down to our level. We don't make him one of us. We don't ascribe human attributes to the all-powerful, infinite, omnipotent, transcendent God. We recognize his holiness and we worship him as such. And the same token, we do not bring the world into the church. We abhor that. And we don't look in the, in, the, in the world around us and say, how do we make ourselves more effective or more attractive or more relevant to the world around us? The Holy Spirit does that, folks. We are called to be His, to live righteousness according to God's plan and to love every single person that God puts in our way. That's what it means to uphold the Word of God. And finally... Finally, it's exactly what John the Baptist did. He pointed people to Jesus. I'm just the forerunner. I'm not the one who's going to save you. It has nothing to do with me. I'm just the messenger. And I want to tell you about the glory that waits for those who trust and believe in Jesus. I want to share the good news with you. Let me tell you about the one who changed my life. Brothers and sisters, those three things. 
That is, that's how we share in it. We don't have to just stand back and look at it. We don't have to just simply from a distance and say, I can never achieve greatness. Those three things are what made John the Baptist great. Those three things can make each one of us share in what we have defined as kingdom greatness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that these are all things we know or we should know. I mean, these are so evident throughout the teaching of Christ, His Sermon on the Mount, in various places, through the letters of Paul, what we studied in John. These are such evident truths. And yet we see them presented here from the words of an angel that you sent directly from your presence with that word on his lips to explain it to Zechariah about his son-to-be. And I don't know, with the drama of that situation, it just seems to take on a little bit uh, of um, more urgency, if you will, or a little bit more gravity. I pray that everyone will see that, will not be... Um, uh, um, ignorant or, or negligent of what you have placed before us, of, of, of what we can do to share in true kingdom greatness, even share in the, in the salvation of others by pointing other people to Jesus. Just like you said, when you said that even though he's the greatest among all men, he's the least of all who are in the kingdom of heaven. To be part of that process to be part of elevating someone else to greatness that surpasses the greatness of John the Baptist. Dear Lord, that's how we share in kingdom greatness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.